Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its continuing mission to explore strange new worlds. To boldly go where no one has gone before. Engage. Engage. Enterprise. Enterprise. This is Captain Jean-Luc Picard. Captain Catherine Janeway. Captain Sisko. This is Captain Jonathan Archer. Red alert. Photon torpedoes. Fire. The official Star Trek podcast. Engage. Engage. Make it so. With your host, Jordan Hoffman. That, sir, is illogical. And to make sure history never forgets. This is Engage. Sailing frequencies open, sir. And we're back. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Engage, the official Star Trek podcast. I am your host, Jordan Hoffman, and this uh, is an emergency episode. Red alert. Red alert. It was brought to my attention by a listener whose name I don't remember. I'm really bad at that sort of thing. But a listener pinged me via social media and said, 47's coming up, dude. And I'm like, what? I'm like, oh, yeah. This was episode 44. We're only a few away from episode 47. And then last week, or the last episode, when we had the guys from Party One Podcast were here, um, Star Trek Online, and then as they were leaving, I'm like, oh my God, the next one's 47. And I already had the next episode planned, which is an away mission, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. But I'm like, no, 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 we got to do an emergency episode. So luckily... Oh, there it is again. Luckily, we have uh, in, uh, is about to beam into the studio, we have author David Mack, who's returning to the show, the first Star Trek author to make a return visit here to Deck 44. But why, you ask? What's the big deal about episode 47? Um, uh, Brian, can we, we have those uh, record tapes uh, from the library computer. Can we please um, uh, bring those up on the main viewer, please? Yes, sir. All right. What do we got here about episode 47? That leaves Dr. Crusher 48 minutes to develop an inoculant to the virus. Which means there's still time for us to do something. 48 minutes. Uh, 47, sir. By my calculations, the next time distortion should occur between 28 to 47 minutes. I'm receiving a code 47. <laughs> I believe we're noticing a pattern. Starfleet emergency frequency. Brian, this this uh, transmission from Starfleet, how how lengthy is this uh, record tape? Uh, it's about five and a half minutes. <laughs> so there's five and a half minutes of 47 is what you're saying. Yes, that is correct. Okay, so hardcore Star Trek. Let's, 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 let's listen again for a second. Output by at least 47%. All right, all right, enough. <laughs> so hardcore Star Trek fans know and noticed at some point along the way in TNG era, 47 became the magic number. Now, previously in science fiction, 42 was the magic number. We'll talk about that. So somebody who has intimate knowledge of 47, uh, having based uh, his many books in the Vanguard series on Starbase 47, is our old chum, David Allen Mack. And it's time to beam him in. So hold on. Let me, let me, get, the, uh, let me get the machine ready. And oh, he's appearing. All the molecules are in the right place. 
That's a hell of a thing. (laughs) (laughs) You've been beamed in. And here I am. And here you are. So um, to give a little bit of behind the scenes, we are recording this after the episode that you're going to hear in two weeks, which is the away mission that we did in Ticonderoga, New York, at the official Star Trek original series set tour uh, that the great James Cauley has put together. And they had an author's day uh, where a lot of Star Trek authors, 13, including David, including Dayton Ward and Kevin Dilmore and uh, Michael Jan Friedman and David, a whole bunch of people. There was uh, and many, many more were there and uh, we did some interviews with many of them and I was just about to leave and then I remembered oh 47 I was talking to Dayton who's been a guest on this show before and I'm like oh what am I going to do I got to do a whole show on 47 he's like talk to Mac over there he said his whole thing on Starbase 47 I'm like oh my god you're right you're right so we're bringing you in so so David as a representative of Star Trek writers and authors what's the deal man what's the deal with 47 47 has always been a magical number in Star Trek, at least since Star Trek The Next Generation. And I think anybody who can go to Memory Alpha or Wikipedia can look it up and find that the person to blame is longtime Star Trek writer Joe Manowski, who I guess belonged to uh, a club, the 47 Club, I believe it was called. Um, I believe it is. Uh, He went to school somewhere in, in California. Hold on. As they all do. As they all do. In any event, there was a, uh, a club. Pomona College. I'm assuming Pomona College is out there in California somewhere. Well, you can Google it. I'm sure it's yeah. somewhere. <laughs> and um, as we read from the web here. Yes. And there, there is. There's some sort of. Marvel at our preparation. There, <laughs> like I said, this is an emergency episode. <laughs> there's some sort of thing at Pomona College where they love the number 47. Well, they, uh, the, the concept is that uh, of their club, and I think it's done tongue-in-cheek, is that all numbers eventually sum to 47. Uh, and so this is a running gag of their social club. Yeah. And I believe one of the other jokes on the Star Trek set was that uh, 40, 47 is 42 adjusted for inflation. Right. Okay. All right. So let's back it up. I'm guessing that a very high percentage of listeners to engage the official Star Trek podcast know all about 42. But, but let's but let's, uh, let's bring pretend, them back into the loop. Let's, let's pretend they back. don't know. Why is 42 the greatest? Douglas Adams, his seminal Praise be work, unto him. Praise be unto him. His seminal work, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, had the great computer uh, asked to resolve what is the answer to life, the universe, and everything. And it cogitated for, what, a million years? Something like that. And it came up with the answer is 42 (laughs) and all of the people who had come to hear the answer were baffled and they said we don't understand 42 what 42 years 42 principles 42 steps and it said well if you want to know you're going to have to figure out what is the ultimate question but the answer is 42 right right so 42 became this running joke in most of science fiction fandom sure um and then it's sort of funny in that uh when the time came to create the star trek vanguard series which started out as the brainchild of editor marco palmieri uh he originally you know wanted this whole thing with the starbase and i wanted to make it starbase 42 because they were chasing this ancient mystery of life the universe and everything 
And he was the one who reminded me that Star Trek had a running gag yeah. about 47. And he said he wanted it to be Starbase 47 so that it would carry forward that Star Trek tradition. And Ike, of course, pointed out, said, well, there's already been a Starbase 47. He says, yeah, but it was an alternate universe and it got blown up, so don't worry Wait, about it. Wait, which was the original Starbase 47? Oh, it's uh, it's even in like one of the Star Trek uh, Star Charts books or whatever. Uh, if you look it up, I think it was mentioned in like parallels or something. It's not. Oh yeah, sure. Well, so, everything's in parallels, right? Come so, on. so I think you can like uh, make a case for the fact that also it was a 24th century starbase. So you could argue that they rebuilt it because the first one fell down, burned, and went into the swamp. The second one burned and <laughs> fell into the swamp, but the third one stayed up. So I think that's probably what happened with that. Douglas Adams and Python, and we're not even five minutes in. This is the nerdiest podcast ever. (laughs) It's about being able to turn on a dime. you got to pivot. you got to (laughs) pivot. So I wanted 42. Marco said make it 47. So this is another example of 42 adjusted for inflation. Good. Good 42 became 47. Um, But once I started looking into it, I realized just what a pivotal number 47 is it is laced all through star trek the next generation and because of joe Manoski uh, basically inculcating this number you know indoctrinating everybody on the track writing staff with this number yeah it became this running gag that carried forward into star trek deep space nine right. star trek voyager star trek enterprise yeah. it got propagated into the books the comic books the video games yep. and when writers moved on from writing for Star Trek to write for other series, the joke propagated to other shows. It spread like a virus. Like it, the, yes. the and blight. It and, 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 and the best example of it, of course, and we'll get to this later, is the J.J. Abrams series Alias, right. which is laced with 47, and apparently the number 47 is the sacred number in the Rambaldi manuscript, <laughs> and page 47 is the pivotal page in the manuscript, and 47 is Again, all through Alias, there you can see numbers, uh, you know, in the background. Doors not marked forty-seven. It's always forty-seven. Addresses yeah. with forty-seven in them. Brian, let's hear. Let's hear a little bit more from that transition. Let, from that transmission, please. Let's see where we left off. You asked it a lot in this one. Enter code. One seven three four six seven three two one four seven this six Charlie three two seven eight nine seven voice. seven seven six four three Brothers. Tango seven three two Victor seven three one one seven eight 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 seven three two four seven six there it is nine seven six four three seven six <laughs> I heard it lock oh he did we it twice we moved into sector two one you missed the earlier one oh. in response to a distress call from a Talarian observation craft level three C section five four seven yes give me a little more a resumption of our present course of warp six will place us in the Talib beta system in six days 13 hours 47 minutes <laughs> okay enough 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 um so Joe Minoski of course he was a uh, producer and a writer on the staff and um just gonna very quickly give you some of the highlights some of his episodes that he wrote or co-wrote are really some of the best uh they include um, first Contact, the episode, um, Darmok, Time's Arrow, The Chase. Uh, these are all, you know, really some of the top of all time TNG. Also Masks. All right, you can't win them all. And then a few in uh, <laughs> DS9, <laughs> Distant Voices, Rivals, and then a whole slew in Voyager uh, that includes uh, Scorpion, Parts 1 and 2, Year of Hell, Timeless Equinox, Blink of an Eye, which is amazing, the list goes on and on and on. And as, you know, those are the ones that he had screen, on screen credit for, but as a staff writer, his, 
you know, his, he's in the stew in a lot of stuff there. So, And it's worth noting that Joe is in the writer's room on Star Trek Discovery. Right. He is one of the ones that's back from the old days. Um, that is Bringing institutional memory. Right. He, so this, one, can, one can probably assume that we're going to hear a little 47 in Discovery. Uh, we can, I think it's inevitable. We can only hope. Now, what's great is that you mentioned Alias. Of course, Alias was produced by... J.J. Abrams. Abrams, who, you know, is a little bit involved in Star Trek, don't you know? Well, he's had and his foot in. He's yeah. had his foot in there. And one of the things that made me really excited. Now, when I um, let's t- let's go back in the Wayback Machine. Um, let's go back in the Wayback Machine to the year 2008. Gee, Mr. Peabody. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was a so Trek came out in May of 2009. So this is probably very early 2000, like January so. Okay, so um, at the time I was working for a geek website called UGO, which was run by Hearst. If you if you read, if you ever go to IGN, IGN was similar to UGO. Three letters, got a G in the middle. And there was a special event at the time. Now, just as much as Discovery is a mystery and under wraps to everyone in the world except for you who's read all the scripts because you're working on one of the novel yep. tie-ins. But to the rest of us, we don't know jack squat about Discovery. Um, people really didn't know a lot about I think, I think I can see the CBS sniper on, on the roof across the street. He's watching me. He's waiting for me to say something about Discovery. You, yeah, but no, no. We're that right would explain near, this red dot on my face. We are right near BlackRock, the corporate center of CBS. Um, so just like there was a lot of mystery with, with JJ and his mystery box, remember, there was really not a lot known at the first one. So when finally they were going to show us uh, in the press the first glimpses, they had an event. They didn't just put up a, a YouTube video. They had a big event. They had one in London, one in LA, and one in New York. And the one in New York was first. And uh, it was at a you know, theater down on 34th Street. Big deal. So I got there you know, an hour and a half early because I'm just salivating and getting ready to flip out. And JJ comes out. At, should I tell the, I'm, I'm going to tell the real story. I'm going I'm to be. Uh, I'm going to be honest. So I was really amped up, right? Because we didn't know anything. We didn't. We didn't know anything. We just saw some pictures. That's all we saw. Um, JJ comes out. You know what the first thing he said was, and he changed his script after this. The first, and I love the guy. I think the, 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 Star Trek 2009 is a masterpiece. I've said this a hundred times. But he comes out. And the first thing he says is, "I was never much of a Star Trek fan." And I try, and I'm there with the press, and the people from Paramount are there, and I'm like right up front. But I got to be me, right? So he goes, "I wasn't much of a Star Trek," and I just go, "Boo!" <laughs> and then I'm like, "Oh shit! What are you doing, you idiot? You're gonna get thrown out of this event!" Boo! <laughs> and he looks at me, and all of his boys there, Brian Burke and Orsi and Lindelof, and and 25 people from Paramount are there. This woman Tamar, who who was my liaison, she looks at me like like I just like I just farted in the theater. And JJ looks at me and he points. He goes, "You're right. You're right to boo." I'm like, "Oh god!" And he says, "Because I was never much of a Star Trek fan before." But now I love these characters. You know, I was much more into the Twilight Zone back when this Star was on the Wars. air. He was a Star, Star Wars guy. Star Wars guy, Twilight Zone guy, blah, blah, blah. But now he loves and he understands Kirk, Spock, and Bones, and he gets it, and you Star Trek fans are, are the best, and blah, blah, blah. And I will say he made a great movie in Star Trek 2009, and he took a difficult and maybe fundamentally flawed script in Star Trek Into Darkness and made it into a propulsive and entertaining and energetic film. That's the that's what I'm staying with. You okay, know, then. he did the best he could with a bad script. Well, it's your show. It's like, <laughs> 
But I love 2009. I love it. I love it so much. And I love the third one. It's a movie that really works in the heart. You it know? really it, does. It, it, it's an emotional uh, ride. I mean, and I got to say, the first time I saw the 2009 Star Trek in the theater, I was with uh, some fellow Star Trek writers. I was with editor Margaret Clark. Uh, it was a special kind of a screening, and from that opening moment with uh, George Kirk on the, yep. uh, you know, uh, on the Kelvin, and that his last act in life is to name his son. Mm. It's like, ah, oh, wow, you know, it's like pull the heartstrings. It's great. And at that point, I realized, you know, in five minutes they've pulled me in, and with that opening sequence, I'm like, all right, I'm emotionally all yeah. in. And between that. And the sequence with uh, Spock and Amanda on Vulcan, which is sort of that th- that that terrible, tragic midpoint reversal moment. Uh, I was like, "Wow, what an emotional roller coaster of a movie!" And uh, I mean, uh, just for the way that it plays on the heartstrings, I think you're right. In that respect, it is uh, a cinematic it's, uh, it's, achievement. And considering how bad it could have been, if they just got some schmo, and if they just... Well, a lot of credit goes to the amazing performances. Oh, uh, yeah. Chris Pine and, and Zach Quinto and Zoe Saldana really brought that to life. Carl Urban as McCoy yeah, is pitch so perfect. Good. So good. But really, uh, I think the script and the direction bring out the, the tragedy, and, you know, and in so doing really show us the hearts of these characters. And I think that's why it becomes so easy to love them so quickly yeah. in their new incarnations. First first one, third one, great. Middle one, meh. But anyway, the point I'm making about all this is, so we go there and he's going to show us selected scenes. And this happens a lot with tentpole films when they, they get some members of the press and Zack Snyder does this a lot and he shows you the most kick-ass scenes of the movie like they did this for Watchmen they showed the opening credits because they're cool opening credits and then you go away saying oh my god Watchmen is a masterpiece then the movie comes out and you go oh my god they showed us the only good stuff so what they did with this is they showed us um, two sequences the first scene was them first warping in um, when um, Kirk's hands are all puffy and they got to and they zoom in and then the um, right and then the um uh, the ships have been attacked. The rest of the fleet's been destroyed. And then they showed us when they first meet the um, Spock Prime, and they showed us one other clip. So the first thing they're going to show us is that action sequence. And he kind of builds it up. He says, you know, Kirk and McCoy are friends at the Academy, and, you know, Spock and he don't really get along, but he left it vague. And let's just cut to it. And it's all the business of then, like, uh, when um, uh, uh, Pike is like, we got to all go. And they're all tasked to their ships, and Kirk is on the outs, and he wants to go on the ship, so McCoy sneaks him on. And there's all this business and then he overhears something that Ohura knows so he's racing to the bridge and there's all this excitement and then they get there and somebody in the stew of the bridge says blah 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 47 ships and I heard 47 I'm like they did their homework you know that for whatever was that was I think they're giving me it's not fan service it's respect it was a long way around the block to get to that 47 <laughs> reference <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to say that right now. Well, you know, if these, you know, you got to pad these shows out. For, you know, you got to make them longer. So, okay. but they, uh, you got to show respect. And then when they said the 47, then that's kind of what, what, what really uh, loving homage. The, the loving homage. But now, what, what you've told me though, because I never really watched Alias, is that 47 had been in in Abrams's. Uh, wheelhouse for a long time. I'm not, I'm not sure which of the writers brought it over. It may have been someone like uh, Orsi or someone else. I, I, I can't remember if there was anybody else who had Star Trek pedigree who was brought into the writing staff early on. I would have to look at the writing The connective credits. tissue between post, Star Trek and post-Minoski 
Star Trek that somehow brought it over to Alias and then Or if it was just a crazy coincidence. I mean, maybe there's somebody else from Pomona College who had the same oh. obsession. Uh, I'm not really sure how it I- infected both shows, but uh, considering that Alias is pretty much post uh, Minoski Star Trek, I mean, it's a product of the mid 2000s. Right. Uh, I think it's a pretty good bet that somebody from Star Trek either was on the staff or probably knew somebody and interacted with someone on staff, but somehow this peculiar obsession with 47 <laughs> got either transmitted or handed off uh, and somehow became a crucial element of Alias, which I, I find hilarious because as I was watching Alias, that was one of the things that kind of endeared it to me. I'm like, there's 47 again. There it is. <laughs> hey, Brian, there was a second transmission that we received. If you can skip ahead about 30 to 45 seconds of that second transmission, can we hear what that has to say? Yes, sir. In minutes. Distance 547 meters. We believe we have just discovered the 247th. For 1 minute 47 seconds, a different memory pattern appeared. How many do we have left in reserve? 47. <laughs> it's Logan, right on the Captain nose, Janeway. that one. Captain Janeway is stored in memory block 47 alpha. Shields are at 47 percent. Graduated Starfleet Academy started 47918. Where's your office? Main complex. Level 6, subsection 47. 47! Suspiria should respond within the next 47 hours. Wait! Set a course bearing 219 mark 47. I'm automated unit 3947. 3947. All right, enough, enough, enough. (laughs) You know, what's going to happen is when you don't hear it now, it's going to be annoying when they don't say 47. Now, what one um, there's a great uh, site out there, which which I use a lot in my, when I'm writing about Star Trek. Um, it's called, maybe you know about it, it's uh, chakotia.net. C-H-A-K-O-T-E-Y-A.net. This is... Um, a woman who goes by the name of Chrissy. Is this the site that has the transcripts? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. I've I've had I've had to rely on it's that a it's times. great. Um, what Chrissy, whomever she may be, at chacotia.net has done has transcribed word for word every uh, episode of every show and every movie pre um, pre uh, the new ones. Uh, she's also done. Uh, she's hardcore. She's done a lot of um, Doctor Who. Uh, it's just called Chrissy's Transcript Sites, and it's um, wonderful. And Stargate, this woman really is is intense. But So she listed pretty much, as much as she could, and even she admitted that she didn't get them all, she's listed every 47 that she could find in, <laughs> um, in TNG and in Voyager and in uh, Enterprise. And for whatever reason, she has not done it for Deep Space Nine. Um, I don't know why. But here's what I'm... Prejudice. <laughs> so here's what I wanted to bring up, though. This is according to Chrissy. Whomever Chrissy is, I've been relying on you for years. You're wonderful. Uh, in a special page, 47 in TOS. If you believe that the timeline moves in two directions, what she writes is, here it is, the list you've been waiting for, not... All right, her sense of humor is a little, uh, you know, dated, but... Remember, these are all pre-Joe Minoski, the real instigator of the 47 conspiracy, and should therefore represent an average occurrence of the numbers from random science. It also includes the movies which seem to go out of their way to avoid the number. That's the second conspiracy. Someone forgot to mute his phone. Oh, boy. And it wasn't the guest. (laughs) 
That was Joe Minoski calling, saying, "Hey, don't don't try to understand my magic." Now that was that was my wife. I have forty-seven gunmen <laughs> coming to kill you. But dig this, all right. So here's the thing: in TOS, there's some forty-seven action, but it's not quite as on the nose. So here are some examples uh, from the Menagerie, even right. Very famous episode. There is the line where they say, Talos 4, General Order 7. Yeah, that's a reach. All right, it's a reach. It's a reach. Balance of Terror, Comet Icarus 4, Magnitude 7. Enterprise waits for 9 hours, 47 minutes. <laughs> Dude, that one I'll count, because you got a 47. All right. When it's 4, and then there's something, and then there's 7, that really seems like you're, you're, you're reaching. Okay. All right. Let's keep it going. Uh, iMud, Alice 471 is the first android they successfully confuse. Okay. Um, uh, Arena, now. All right. Yeah, listen to this. DePaul gives their position as 2279PL. Add the two two and that's a four and then oh, it's for a crime <laughs> out loud. <laughs> Boom, you slap that down. Aaron of Mercy, Spock estimates the chances of escape from Organia are seven thousand eight hundred and forty seven thousand eight hundred twenty four point seven to one. Point I don't know. By the way, C three PO stole uh, everything from, from Spock. I I'm gonna have to throw a flag on this play. <laughs> Um, Journey to Babel. Sarek is 102.437 years old. No, a lot of these are, are Bovo. No. Omega Gro- Glory. Regulation 7, paragraph 4. That's backwards. No. SS Beagle in Bread and Circuses has a crew of 47. There we go. All right. Paradise Syndrome. Enterprise is at deflection point 7, then 4. No. Spock changes course to 37 mark 010. Zero. That's 37 plus 10 equals no. 47. No. All right. Empath, the solar flare will take 74.1 hours to pass. Come on. (laughs) Okay, more troubles, more tribbles. This is animated, but it's still pre-Minoski. Cyrano Jones is in violation of 47 local mandates. Okay, I see that's a hard hit. Ding, 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 ding. hard hit. There you go. Star Trek Generations, that's post-Minoski. So uh, Scott beams out 47 of 140 refugees. Data says the ribbon will arrive in 47 minutes. Mm Mm-hmm. Star Trek 2009, the Klingon Armada of 47 ships were destroyed by Romulans. Perfect. Star Trek Into Darkness, Kirk needs to adjust his target destination to 183 by 473 degrees. Eh, I don't know about that one. By 473 degrees? Yeah. Do they not know how degrees work? Star Trek Into Darkness things are very wacky in that one. Oh, man. (laughs) Don't get me started. Brian, let's hear the transmission again. Which one? Uh, the second one. Unit 3947. Unit 3947. Unit 3947? Tell me something, 39. Can I call you 39? I am automated unit 3947. <laughs> Fine. 3947. 3947. Okay. Your last systems access was on star date 47. All right, enough, 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 enough. Brian, have we blown your mind today? Yes. Did <laughs> You had no idea about any of this, right? I, I, I didn't, actually. I'm reading more about it here. That it, it, it also went to some other Abrams shows like Fringe. Oh, yeah. Fringe. I, it was a big deal oh, in Fringe. Oh, yeah. Fringe. And, and, and it even potentially went to The Force Awakens. Uh, it says that the thermal so, oscillator is located in Precinct 47. Oh, wow. Let's see. All right, see. so how did it jump from Minoski TNG to Abrams? That's what I was trying to look up, and I can't what see is it. What, we do is we, what we have to do is we have to look at the, the credits for writer-producers on Alias and see if there's any commonality between 
the writing staff on Alias right. and the writing staff of any Star Trek series. Well, you, you're using the scientific method right now. I like this. this yes, we're going to use a, a, a cross-elimination, and we're going to see if anybody is a common Patient factor. Patient zero. We're going to look for a common factor. Yeah. yeah. A, uh, so here's a while he's looking for that, or yeah. while you're looking for that, here's another fun coincidental use of 47, although not on screen. This is a behind-the-scenes 47. Oh, Kirsten Beyer, yes. who is a Star Trek novelist who has joined the writing staff of Star Trek Discovery, yeah. when they started work officially as a writing staff this past January, yeah. Kirsten was 47 years old. <laughs> ah, there you go. Getting her big break uh, as a staffer on wow. TV on Star Trek. There you go. There 47, you go. man. It's it, the Star Trek age. It's, it's the, the magic ma- number. That's good to know. That's good to know. It's a magic number. <laughs> little schoolhouse rock callback for you pretty good that's pretty good so while you know brian's looking for some common common threads to get us from trek to fringe and then that's funny that's in force awakens now if it's in the new star wars in ryan johnson then we've got ourselves a trend it's a it's a it's a or as arlo said you know no what we got here is a movement (laughs) a movement i'd really like for it to to be extended into the new star trek episode excuse me star wars Episode eight that's coming in December. It then, would be cool. Then that would be like awesome. maybe you find out that Luke had forty-seven Jedi who were killed by Kylo Ren. Right. Well, he's the last one, so forty-six will have fallen. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess. I'm saying BB yeah, forty-seven 40, students. Maybe BB eight has is one of forty-six. He children. has forty-six cousins. Yeah, for, BB forty-six. <laughs> to play it a new podcast network featuring radio and tv personalities talking business sports tech entertainment and more play it at play.it this is engage the official star trek podcast hey you've got a new book that's in stores right now it just came out a very a few weeks ago well about yeah i guess uh, maybe six weeks ago that's still point. new that's still relatively new it's set in the sector section, section 31. 31 it's set in the uh the post nemesis era of star trek where the series have all tended to bleed together um where you've got ds9 and next generation sort of freely intermingled and they have spawned spin-offs like star trek titan where Riker has his own command, and you've got uh, you know uh, all sorts of interesting things going on. Where Dax has her own command on the Aventine, and this is Esri Dax. Esri Dax. Yeah. So, what happens with Section Thirty One books? And this is uh, we're talking specifically about Section Thirty One Control, which is my most recent novel, released at the end of March of uh, twenty seventeen, and it is a story that focuses on Doctor Bashir and his long running mission to infiltrate, expose, and destroy Section 31, Ooh. which has been something that has been very important to him since the last two seasons of Deep Space Nine. Right. He's and not a fan because of the genetic engineering. Not only the genetic... Well, it's, it's not that they participate in genetic engineering. What he finds detestable about Section 31 is that they represent the antithesis of what the Federation is supposed to be. They are an organization that operates without oversight. They are accountable to no one. They are not answerable to the law. They operate outside the normal paths of command and control, and yet they claim to be somewhat affiliated either with Starfleet or with the Federation. But nothing that Bashir was able to find 
was ever able to legally justify their existence. They are very much an extra-legal black ops intelligence organization, mostly devoted to, uh, I would say, counterintelligence operations. Right, ends justify the means type things. Exactly. I mean, mean, their their ultimate goal, by and large, is to protect... Protect. Defend the Federation Defend at all Federation costs and from threats ideals, within and without. But it's, it's not but they playing do, by the but, rules. But they do so by means that uh, are in direct conflict with the values that make up the basis of the Federation. Well, they this have, is, they this have no is respect a, for yeah. sentient rights. They have no respect for due process of law. They are not accountable to higher authorities. And as such, they represent a, 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 a threat to the liberty and the safety of Federation citizens because they do take extra legal action and are not answerable. So Bashir has had it in for these guys since they first tried to recruit him, I believe, during the sixth season of Deep Space Nine. And he had a number of run-ins with them during the course of the Dominion War. And then in the books, there were four novels originally published under the Section 31 banner. Right. Uh, and those spanned the original series era and then uh, Next Gen, DS9, and I believe there was a Voyager one. And my sort of saga of Bashir against Section 31 goes back to about the year 2010 when I wrote a novel called Zero Sum Game as part of the Typhon Pact uh, miniseries of books. And the original concept behind that book was I was going to take us deep into the culture of the Breen and expose what the Breen really are, who and what their culture is really all about. Weird, creepy green refrigerators. Well, that's what you are led to think by certain episodes, but one of the things I found as I researched the Breen and pulled up all the canon references about the species is that there are many conflicting and mutually unreconcilable descriptions of what the Breen are and what's under the costume and... uh, the problem is that when you're writing a tie-in novel, you don't get to pick and choose which parts of canon are true and which are not. Right, right. And nobody wanted to make a ruling that, you know, this episode was correct and this one wasn't. Sure. So my goal was to come up with an explanation that allowed them to all be true, even though some of them are mutually exclusive. And what I eventually realized is that the easiest way to make them all true is to say that the Breen, Breen is not a species. Breen is a cultural designation, Ah, like saying American. Sure, yeah. Breen is actually, and there's a reason why it's a confederacy. A confederacy means a whole bunch of independent or sovereign states bound together under a confederation that ties them for common interest. So the Breen Confederacy is actually a union of many different sentient species, but Although they profess to believe in meritocracy, equality, equality of opportunity, equality of outcome, whatever, the way they achieve it is not the Federation way where everybody has a shot and you find your niche and you just kind of do what you do. They believe that there was prejudice and the only way to combat the prejudice between species was to mask everybody. Oh. So they went the Harrison Bergeron I was just going to say that's the Harrison Bergeron. My, my inspiration yeah. for this was to f- say that the Breen culture is sort of like the Kurt Vonnegut story Harrison Bergeron writ large where they all have their identities masked and the reason the masks all have snouts is that there's one lupine like wolf-like species among them so they now all have to have these snouts so you can't yeah. tell who is and isn't one of them whoa and some of them require the refrigeration and some don't and some re- and have the this. ones that don't require it still have to wear still have it. to wear the pack oh that's heavy but they don't uh, use the refrigeration function so but everybody has to look identical and the reason they all have their voices processed through these stupid vocoders that send out this drill machine 
noise. Yeah. So you can't tell the original language of the person you're speaking to. Your everything you say goes out through your vocoder. Everything everyone else says comes back through the vocoder. You don't know anyone's gender. You don't know anyone's species. Yeah. You don't know their original language. You just know them as Breen. You just know them as Breen. And everybody has their name shortened so that you don't have any cultural markers based on name. So everybody gets these remarkably truncated, simple, you know, Braz, Choi, th- you know, not, whatever. Yeah. So you get these almost monosyllabic names that remove almost all cultural uh, markers so that you can't tell by name who somebody is. So that's the sort of weird culture I came up with for the Breen. And I sent Bashir with Serena Douglas, who was the woman that he rescued from a cataleptic state. She was part of the Jack Pack. And uh, I sort of revived their romantic relationship in Zero Sum Game. Because he had said in the episode Chrysalis, when he kind of cured her condition, that this is the woman he had waited for his whole life. Yeah. But he met her at a time when she wasn't ready yet. Yeah. Well, it didn't take her that long. It took her a few years to come around. But yeah. So I put them back together, had her be the love of his life. Awesome. I always like that episode. So, And the, they go together in stolen Breen costumes, and they <laughs> infiltrate the Breen, and they go on this whole spy mission, and it's this sort of a weird take on Bashir once again doing the thing where he gets to play spy and finds out is not as much fun as he <laughs> thought it was going to be. <laughs> In fact, it's a dangerous, bloody business in which he ends up having to kill basically a lot of innocent, like, civilian brain engineers. But he looks great in the suit. But he looks great in the suit. He looks great with a weapon. But the thing is, he comes home deeply troubled by everything he's done. And some readers uh, of Zero Sum Game commented... Why is it that the Breen in this book come off as more sympathetic than Bashir and some of the Federation characters? Mm. And I said, well, that was deliberate. The whole point is you think Bashir is the hero because he's your main character, because he's human, because he's Federation. But he's you know, participating in the destruction of a civilian shipyard. He's killing hundreds of innocent people. You know, when he sees no other path to victory but to gun down a whole bunch of technicians in the control center, because he knows if they get away, they're going to bring security down on his head, mm-hmm. he realizes he's got to shoot them. So he shoots them. Wow. But he shoots 10 unarmed civilian technicians. And the thing is, this haunts Bashir now for years mm. after this mission. So that is how the Bashir versus 31 story arc uh, began in the books, and it continued when we did a miniseries, uh, I believe, known as uh, The Fall. And I wrote a book called A Ceremony of Losses. And in that, Bashir uh, takes it upon himself to uh, cure the problem that the Andorian species had been having. This is something else we established in the books, that there was a reproductive crisis and that the numbers of the Andorian population were rapidly dwindling. The mm. Borg attack that happened in my Destiny trilogy exacerbated that so that within you know a century or so, the Breen are going to be on the verge of going out as a species because they just can't reproduce fast enough to replace their numbers. Bashir realizes that the data that could help solve their problem is locked away in some Federation archive related to Project Vanguard a century earlier, ah. related to like the Taurus metagenome or whatever. To get at it, he uses his contacts at Section 31. Oh, he makes a deal with the devil. He makes a deal with the devil, and it costs him his career. It gets him arrested, thrown in a black site has his medical license taken away, but he considers it all worth it because to him, saving the entire Andorian species by doing this and throwing away his, basically his personal and professional life and his career in the process, balances his own personal scales of justice for the lives that he took 
during the mission to, to the Breen uh, shipyard. And then the story continues in my first Section 31 novel, Disavowed, in which now Bashir, now a civilian, gets recruited officially into 31, and he goes in and has his sort of first undercover mission for them, and that ends up taking him back to the Mirror Universe, ties into some of my Mirror Universe novels. So he's working for the group that he despises, but they're the only people that can but use he, him. But he's also doing it to infiltrate them because he wants to map ah. out their command and control structure. He brings Serena in with him ah. because she's been a, a, a covert Section 31 infiltrator the whole time for, for Starfleet Intelligence. So now they're together. They've infiltrated 31 and disavowed. They go on this mission to the Mirror Universe, and then that sets up Section 31 Control, which is the final showdown. Okay, so you've prepped this. So for those who are intrigued but maybe want to jump right into Control, you sort of set the stage. I'm sure one, after listening to this and reading the first chapters, so can get caught up in their own head and dive right into this last one. And this is the last one, right? The last one I'm doing. I have no plans to continue this particular Section 31 arc. Yeah. I, I've done what I wanted to do with it. I've told the story I want to tell, yeah. and I've achieved the the narrative objectives I set out to achieve. I awesome. don't feel there's anything more for me to do there. Can you tell us which planets this new one goes to, or any exciting places? Uh, well, let's see. We, uh, we start, uh, part of it is on Andor, part of it is on Earth. We pay a visit to Cardassia Prime. Oh. We pay a visit to the Orion homeworld. Ah, uh, we, get, we, get, we get to see where Data, you know, calls his sort of planet of solitude out in the void a rogue planetoid that uh that goes back to my cold equations trilogy yeah. and the resurrection of data right uh and there's a whole storyline behind that yeah, he's b4 with a little data inside no, or no, no he's not before no no that was the comic books approach at which i found completely repulsive because it required b4 to die in order to bring back data, and that's something I didn't think... Uh, that's also Star Trek Online's approach. Yeah, well, I disagree with their approach, and I took a different approach, and I think mine is better. Well, give me a little... All right, this is good, because just last uh, on the last show, we had our friends from the Star Trek Online podcast who were telling us... I mean, you know, it's implied at the end of Nemesis that, you know, data has done a little... Contra dump. Well, they don't even imply it. They say it outright that he copied his memories uh, into B4, hoping that B4 could build something on them. Yeah. But B4 is an earlier model. That's like saying if you dump a copy of OSX Sierra <laughs> into you know, a Commodore 64, into a Commodore 64 <laughs> it'll magically turn into a Mac Pro. Right. That's not the way it works. That's not how any of this works. Right. All you're really going to do is overload the poor Commodore 64 and eventually I, it's going to melt down. I agree with you, but I didn't want to say anything in front of the Star Trek That's why I, people. So I found the, the online and comic book explanation to be uh, insufficient, and I found it uh, dissatisfying, and I particularly disliked the notion of B4 as an entity, as an individual, having to be condemned to death for Data to be resurrected. So, sure, that's a Tuvix move. So I did some research, and I went back to the TNG episode Brothers. And with lore. With lore. Yeah. And that's the one where lore steals the emotion ship that's meant for Data and supposedly beats down poor old Noonien Sung to his death. Here's the fun part. Go rewatch the episode. Watch the ending. Yeah. You know what you notice if you watch the ending of that episode? You never see Noonien Sung die. Oh. And when Data returns to the ship, he never says that Sung has died. He what? never says it. What the word he doesn't say anything. He steps on the bridge. Everyone assumes Sung has died, and Picard says the crew is very sorry for your loss, or something to that effect. 
And he says, thank you. And he goes and continues on his duties. He never says that Sung has died. We never see Sung die on screen. We have no canonical evidence for the death of Noonien Sung. This is this is exciting. <laughs> Everyone has a homework assignment now. Go so, back and watch so, Brothers again. So not to uh, you know spoil too much, but no. it, but in the first novel of my Star Trek Cold Equations trilogy, which is called The Persistence of Memory, and you'll recognize it. it's got a picture of a young Noonien Sung on the cover with mm-hmm. Geordi. Uh, the premise here is that, and I, and this was a sequel to a novel by Jeff Lang called Immortal Coil, in which Jeff Lang tied together almost all of the artificial intelligence representations we've ever seen in Star Trek, original series, Next Gen, and DS9, and he tied them all together into a grand history of artificial intelligence in the Star Trek universe, and he specifically laid out Noonien Sung's place in that history and his role, along with people like Ira Graves, Flint from Requiem for Methuselah, oh, awesome. who later comes back in alternate identities, who also did not really die. You as know, reported. If, and and in the comics, in a cross, in a kind of a non-canonical crossover comics, mm-hmm. he's also um, Vandal Savage from DC, the DC universe. Sure, I could buy is that. Flint. Sure, I could buy it. They're the same guy. Sure. So, building <laughs> off of all of that, <laughs> my premise in uh, Persistence of Memory is that Sung did not, in fact, die. He faked his death. He did enough that Data would go. Yeah. But that, for instance, why are all of the model androids that he built, why do they all look like him as a young man? Why would a creator, it's not just ego. And consider that although he's been building this emotion chip for Data for 30-some-odd years, apparently, yeah. this can't be the only thing he's been doing. He's got to have been working on something else. And sure. we know, yeah. based on the fact that in the sixth, I believe it's a sixth or seventh season episode of TNG, when we meet Juliana Tainer, and we realize that she is in fact an android copy of the original Juliana Tainer with the, her consciousness copied over into the android matrix. What does that tell you? It tells you that Noonien Sung at some point took the technology that we saw in the original series. Remember the spinny thing where you yes. can transfer consciousness into uh, an Dr. Android Dr. Richard Corby, yes. You got it. Yeah. It's from what uh, what are little girls made of, I mm-hmm. believe. Yep. That technology, apparently at some point, Noonien Sung mastered it, and he figured out how to transplant human consciousness into a Sung-type android. He did it with Juliana Tainer. Why is he developing this technology? Why do all of his androids look like him? He's trying to clone himself. He's preparing for immortality. Yeah. So he's building the perfect beast. And Data, you know, is sort of like the latest stop. And then you have this whole thing where he's been spending all these years. He builds himself this great body. He fakes his own death, transform, you know, basically transfers his consciousness into a new perfect sort of android body and sort of falls off the map, goes off the grid. But now he's got this other obsession where he's trying to reunite with Juliana Tainer, and then there's all these other things. So uh, the entire middle half of the book, like the middle 50% of the book, all of Act 2, I shift into Noonien Sung's first-person, present-tense perspective. Mm. So that, you know, the the opening act of the book is all third-person, standard Star Trek adventure. Our heroes are chasing some weird mystery. And then from the moment you realize that they've just caught up with an android who is actually Noonien Sung, I shift, and when you go into part two of the book, we shift verb tense, and nice. we shift into first-person point of view. The entire middle of the book is all 
Noonien Sung's story told in first person. And then the third act of the book, we go back to third person action. Um, but the whole premise is that he's over the years has kept track of his sons. He mourns the death of Lore, the destruction of the dismantling of Lore. And then when he finds out, how, how did B four end up on that Dobie planet, and how did Shinzon? That's covered in my uh, story, Twilight's Wrath, and <laughs> the right. Tales of the Dominion anthology. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I've I covered have, that. I have read a lot of Star Trek tie-in novels and stories, but I feel like. Uh, I got to brush up on your stuff because I feel like I've read a lot of your stuff compared to the average, to the average, the average Joe, bear, the but, average uh, Jamoke, yeah. But so I, you're one of the great questions of Nemesis. Well, there's a lot of questions. About there's Nemesis, a lot of questions you could ask ha- after. How Nemesis. the heck did he end up on that planet, and how did Shinzon? So you're telling me in the Tales of the Dominion, Tales War of the Dominion War anthology, edited which, by Keith R. A. DeCandido, which I own and have not read. I'm a, I I'm have a shame. A, I'm a my story. Monster, yeah. My story in that anthology is called Twilight's Wrath. And it is all about how Shinzon rose to power among the Remans, got the position of authority that he had. Yeah. And it's basically about the mission in which he finds before. Okay. And I happen to I think Shinzon's a good character. I think he was a good idea for a character, and I think the execution did him a disservice. I think that it could have been much better. My take on younger Shinzon yeah. during the Dominion War is that he was very much like a freedom fighter. The Remans were an oppressed, enslaved people, used as cannon fodder. He counted himself as one of them. And although he was not truly one of them, he rose up among them because he was a good uh, tactician, a good strategist, a great swordsman. And as a result, they show him respect. They follow him. They trust him. And one of the things you see in Twilight's Wrath is during a combat scene, they figure out how to use... uh, you know some some tech tricks to basically take away energy weapons from the Jemadar, and they force the Jemadar to come out of their shrouding and engage in hand-to-hand combat with blades against the Remans, which makes it pretty much a fair fight. Yeah. And at one moment, you know, Shinzon makes like one misstep. He's about to get cleaved in half by a Jemadar, and like three Remans come out of nowhere, one to take the hit for Shinzon and the other two to take down the, the Jemadar awesome. because his men will die for him. Yeah. They will go into any flame. They yep. will charge into any blade. I, I like Ron Perlman as his major domo. He was yep. always a, a I got, cool I got, character. I got that guy in the story as well. But you sort of see you know, what it is about him in this story that he generates. You know, he, he inspires this level of loyalty from his men that they will follow him into hell. They will die for him. Uh, and him and he for them. I, I paint him. If you could imagine that, had he taken a slightly more noble path, had he not sort of committed himself to this genocidal path out of a misplaced desire for vengeance, he could have been a great man. He could have been well, a great leader. He had the DNA of Picard. He I mean, had, that's the whole. It, it, he had the potential, and he abused it, and he squandered it. Well, he, it, he could have been a great man. And said he wound up a terrible man. Yeah. Well, it's a. Gr- I mean, listen, Nemesis is a. Is a is not Star Trek's finest hour, but no. what's in there is a good argument for nature versus nurture because it's right there on the surface. I mean, it has the same DNA, but their upbringing is different. And with one side, you get Picard, and with the other side, you get in any Shinzon event. So this story explains how Shinzon yeah fin- well, well, finds before. So so the, to get back to persistence of memory, the whole yeah. premise is that uh, we sort of follow up on something where Data, as you know, dies at the end of Nemesis, and uh, this news when it reaches. Uh, Noonien Sung devastates him and then he realizes as he's going through logs he realizes that all of Data's memories are stored in B4 and this at once gives him hope but it also horrifies him because he knows B4 is not made 
to hold that. B4 has maybe a few years of operational life before that burden is going to overtax him and melt him down. So he's got to save B4, but he doesn't want to lose data. He realizes what data needs is a new body and a new soul. The memories are nothing without the soul, and Noonien Sung is the guy who knows how to build it. He can Mm. build data a new soul. So he goes through all this, not to spoil the ending, but certain things in his plan, it's a really good plan, but there are unexpected eventualities that pull the rug out from under poor Noonien, and he is forced at the end to make a last-minute, last-ditch decision for how to save both his sons. Noonien's choice. Noonien's choice. But he finds a way. He basically has his Kobayashi Maru, and at the end of Persistence of Memory, Noonien makes a, a fateful decision that will enable him to save both his sons. Brian, can we go back to that first transmission again? Yes, we can. Because I think there's a little bit more info we need to hear before we close Captain this out. Captain's log started 4447.5. parsecs from our previous position, bearing 285 mark 147. and 3 investigation, stardate 40164.7. Nah. All right, computer. That one was on the Analyze on the edge. Analyze audio elements. Time index 1447 to 1558. Captain. The probe's energy output is overloading our shields. Failure anticipated in 47 seconds. There you go. Captain Log, stop it. Brian, did you, do any, uh, did, you, did you find the answer? Did you find the missing link? I found nothing. I, I searched the uh, every writer for Alias, and they have no prior Star Trek credits. Okay. Uh, the only thing I could figure is that one of them must have went to Pomona College. Pomona College. Yeah. Or maybe or, just one was a fan. Or maybe the writers, uh, you know, some of the writers for Alias happened to be just friends with or right. went to the same parties as... Yeah the writers for Star Trek, and they cross-pollinated. I, I refuse to believe that it's a coincidence. I believe that there it, it was done with prior knowledge, whether it was whether there was uh, whether there was chums or was a dare, maybe somebody lost a poker bet. And the thing is, things like this happen in television all the time. For instance, if you look at a show like Breaking Bad, which had its character played by Jonathan Banks, a guy named, uh, I think, Mike Ehrmantraut, and now he's reprising that role in Better Call Saul. Mm-hmm. I was recently watching a show on a different network, because those two shows are both AMC. A show on FX, Fargo, the most recent season, is this episode set in, like, you know, 2010 or whatever, and the characters are referring to someone named Rick Ehrmantraut. Now, this is a rather unusual surname, and for them to have pulled Ehrmantraut out of uh, the zeitgeist, out of thin air... Yeah, that's gotta be. It seems like that's not a coincidence. That's one show... Offering a subtle, polite nod of acknowledgement to another show that they respect. Has to be. So when you see something like that, it could be that the 47 uh, habit, the 47 running gag propagating, let's say, from Star Trek to Alias and Fringe and other bad robot productions was the way that those writers, maybe there is no direct professional connection, but maybe that was their way of saying, that's a great joke. We respect what you do. Yeah. We're going to continue the joke as a running gag to act as a, an ongoing sign of our affection and respect for what you do. Yeah, I like that. That's pretty good. Well, listen, I think on that note, we should call it a day. Thank you again, uh, Dave, for coming by today. We appreciate it. I liked hearing about your most recent book and all the stuff leading up to it. And we're, you were, I don't think we spoke in Ticonderoga on uh, on the podcast. We had some of the other writers who I hadn't talked to, uh, Keith R.A. DeCandido, yeah. and I had a funny chat, and um, I was just kind of wandering around with James Cauley 
when as he was doing the tour. And we'll do more about that in the next episode. But before we go, if I can just get a sense from you, um, there is this up in Ticonderoga, New York, which is a vacation holiday weekend spot near Lake George. Very pretty. It's about three and a half hours north of New York City, two hours south of Montreal, about an hour west of Burlington, Vermont. It's a nice place to go for the weekend, and it's where Fort Ticonderoga is, which is very important from the Revolutionary War. But now it has this new tourist destination, which is the Star Trek set tour, which sprang from um, Cawley was one of the producers on one of the on the most uh, elaborate of the fan film uh, fan films, and now has all these sets and. A little bit of your impression of that day um, and, and, and the sets, how excited. I mean, you, I saw you and your wife taking a lot of pictures yep. with your uh, with the, uh, the small plush rabbit. Yes, <laughs> M- Mr. Bunny. Yeah, so Mr. Bunny, I, I mean, I didn't want to ask, but uh, tell us a little <laughs> bit about Mr. B- how does Mr. Bunny fit into the Star Trek canon? And, he doesn't uh, really fit into the Star Trek canon. <laughs> He's just my, my personal mascot. <laughs> You can see uh, pictures of him on my Facebook page or on my Twitter feed. Right. Uh, um, no, Mr. Bunny is, you know, just, uh, he, he, he's my, my plush pal. He was the beginning of my, my whole bunny fixation thing. Uh, and that goes back to about 2006. But uh, as for the set tour, wow, what a great weekend. It was like walking through my childhood to be able to walk those sets, to walk those corridors, to hear the sounds, you know, to hear the red alert or the sounds of the computers. Uh, echoing down those uh, passages, really just amazing to stand in main engineering and uh, see that sort of you know optical illusion, the yeah. uh, you know the what, force perspective, force perspective yeah. you know yeah. going down the warp uh, core there, just terrific stuff. I mean, it was the place is clearly a labor of love. Oh yeah, uh, and it's amazing that James Colley had both you know the the inspiration uh, to put it together, the stubbornness, uh, the obsession, if you will, to to make it all happen, but then also the insight and the acumen to realize that at a time when fan films were suddenly, you know, cast into uh, the spotlight with the Axonar lawsuit over the last year or so, realizing that maybe fan film use was not the most uh, financially viable path, but that he'd already sunk all these costs into building this remarkable thing. He had this great insight, which was, why not get permission from CBS to create this as a tourist attraction, officially license it, and become an official licensed attraction? Yeah. And because he had built such a good relationship uh, with the folks at CBS through you know respect for them and respect for their, uh, their property, they were quite amenable. And, and as a result, he's built this truly amazing thing, which I think any fan of the original series... Uh, would just love to see. Yeah, there's nothing else like it. I mean, if you go to conventions, like the one in Vegas, for example. They have uh, the traveling have, bridge set. They have a bridge set, and it's very good. Yes, <clears throat> it is. It's nice. It's great for photo ops, and it's lovely. You walk into, but, and I'm, again, I'm not putting it down, but but you're in the Rio Hotel in Las Vegas, and they have a con- not, um, they have a ballroom. What do they call them? Um like a room, you know, they have one of those sectioned off rooms. Sure. And it's got, you know, this kind of bland carpeting and just bland chairs. But then on the side wall, if you sort of crop your vision, you feel like you're on the bridge. When you go into Callie's set, first when you come in, you feel like you're at Desilu Studios because he's got all these old signs. He's got old scoop lights. He's got old Desilu cameras, which shot Desilu shows, you know. They, well, they, not just that, like the camera that's in the lobby. Yeah. Uh, the big camera, it's on an old-styled uh, rolling dolly, 
And there is a placard welded onto the frame that tells you all the different productions that that camera rig was used on, uh, not just TV shows, but films. One of the films that uh, camera rig was used on was Woody Allen's Take the Money and Run. <laughs> I did not see that. That's oh, amazing. What a, what a great movie. And, oh, it's and, hilarious. And, and yeah. So to realize I was sitting next to a camera that Woody Allen used on one of my favorite comedies wow. of all time. And it were, Although that particular camera was not used on Star Trek, it was used on Mission Impossible right. and other Desilu productions. Well, what they said to me is that, uh, although they have no definite proof that it was on Trek, it probably it may was have, called into service at one point it if may they have, had a complex shot or something. But they but, do have a clapboard, which they yeah. can verify was used on a third season episode. Nice. And they have original tribbles. They have actual production tribbles. Used on set tribbles. Yeah. They also have a uh, a little artifact in Kirk's quarters, like a gold box or a brass box, that was actually on the set. It was the it was the original from the 1960s series, yeah. and they have like proof of uh, chain of custody, provenance on the thing. Apparently, it was given by Shatner to the head of a fan club, right, right, and right, then yeah. that person passed away. The item was up for auction. Kali managed to acquire it, and so he got the this original prop from Kirk's quarters with uh, properly documented provenance to show that it is the original and yeah. not a replica. So yeah, the pro- I mean, there's a zillion props, and this is all a tease for the next show, but the thing that just really blew me away is that once you're in it, you really feel like you're on the, on the Enterprise. It's you very walk, immersive. Very immersive. You walk from the transport room to sick bay, you know, to down the uh, corridor to Kirk's quarters. Down the corridor to Kirk, to, then to engineering, then to like little side avenues and... and um, if if you the Jeffrey's tube is a particular <laughs> delight. Yes, so we did like a tour, but then um, and we kind of followed James Cauley, and then everybody's on the bridge taking pictures. You're there taking pictures of of your plush bunny, and Cauley whispers and goes says to me, "Hey, while everybody's here, go walk the corridor by yourself. It'll feel like deja vu. It'll feel like you're in a place you've been before." But it's mm-hmm. only because you've been watching Star Trek obsessively right. for, for years. I think we all did that at and, some point that and day. And it blew me away. I was like, oh, my God. It really did feel like walking in a dream. So, a, lot, a lot of us got some of like that video where you just sort of walk silently down the yeah. corridor and just shoot as you go. Yeah. We're going to try and edit some of that together maybe post it up on Facebook. It's, it's really cool. And it was great because there were, like I say, a, a dozen, maybe even 13 of the Star Trek authors and that were there. So that's the episode we're going to hear next. But for now, we want to say thanks again for 47 and uh, Dave, people can follow you on Twitter at David Allen A L A N Mac M A C K, and you can find me on the web at davidmac.pro. Pro, and you can uh, read up on uh, you can buy this new book that, that we've been talking about. You today. can buy Control, but what I really want you to do is pre-order my new original novel, The Midnight Front, coming in January 2018 from Tor Books. Awesome, will do. All right, so we'll see you again next time. Until then, live long and prosper. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. 
Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.